everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we're recording alongside on Helix, a digital conference that's been hosted by One Nucleus. The overarching title of that meeting is Transforming New Medicine Discovery. To do this effectively and sustainably, organizations need to have confidence that the approaches they're taking uh, will deliver a return on investment. So in light of this, I thought it might be useful for us to look at some of the key business challenges um, that companies face as they seek to translate discoveries into tangible benefits for patients, whether it's early stage biotechs looking at the resource trade-offs in an R&D pipeline, biotechs with commercial ambitions, needing to develop tactical marketing plans, or those um, uh, you know, others who are, who are in that space. So uh, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, um, uh, my DRG colleague, uh, Srikant uh, Rajagopal, uh, although we, we call him Doc. Uh, Doc is a partner at DRG Consulting. Uh, he's based out of London, and his areas of expertise uh, include uh, product and portfolio strategy, pricing, reimbursement, um, and, and access across Europe and, and emerging markets, uh, transaction advisory, and commercial strategy. So, Doc, um, I hope you and those you care about are keeping well and safe, and uh, thanks so much for, for, for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Uh, pleasure to be on Conversations on Healthcare, and look forward to our discussion today. Great. So, as we know, within the life sciences ecosystem, no company, not even the large multinationals, has all the answers they need to successfully translate a, a discovery into a tangible medicine. What are the most common challenges biotechs come to you when you know asking for help? Sure. Um, so a lot of the work that we do, Mike, with biotechs focuses on uh, companies that have assets that are progressing uh, to phase two and beyond. And some of the typical questions, as you could imagine, uh, relate to a decision. And that decision almost invariably is related to investment. So when we think about um, prioritizing an indication, which indication uh, to go for, for an asset in order to optimize asset value. Uh, another decision could be uh, a go-no-go -go decision on investing in phase three development, given uh, the likely value uh, on commercialization. Another decision could be geographic expansion. Uh, a lot of biotech clients of ours are based in the US and for them, Incremental value in Europe or major emerging markets is a significant question, not, not simply because of uh, the value in those markets, but also sometimes the risk from a pricing perspective, from a competitive perspective. Um, so we support clients on a range of such uh, decisions. And the last but not the least, of course, is licensing out. Um, many biotechs may not have the commercial wherewithal to do it all on their own. And in those situations, we advise them not just on who to partner with, but potentially how much to partner for. Right. right. OK, so so let's look specifically at, you know, at, at some of those the, those areas. Um, you know, many biotechs these days, uh, they're able to transform themselves into commercial businesses um, mm -hmm. you know, and so retain as much values as from their assets as, as possible. And, yep. and they do that by focusing on, on orphan indications. In your experience, what, what are the sort of the, the key business questions um, 
that you know that a company would 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 have to address you know if it was you know looking to sort of you know, exploit that orphan opportunity sure um so when when biotechs come to us and when they have an orphan indication then very oftentimes the question that the, the, the most important question um is um Yes, we understand that this this asset is indicated for an orphan indication, but can you give us a sense of what the addressable patient population is? And that's oftentimes not a very straightforward question to answer because um, whilst um, sizing an orphan population on the surface is relatively straightforward, um, one has to consider a number of different um, dimensions. For example, line of therapy that can impact your addressable patient population. Um, what could also impact your patient population could be a uh, treatment protocol or a treatment guideline. That means that your asset is in some ways limited to a certain population, which you may not have trialed the asset for as part of your baseline plan. Um, other issues related to sizing an addressable population relate to um, challenges with diagnosis. Uh, challenges pinpointing those diagnosed patients and bringing them to a center of care. So a lot of issues related to just how big is my patient pool is a significant step one question, right? Uh, following that, once we've addressed the, the question of how big is my target patient pool, how, how, how sizable is the opportunity, then comes the question of how do I actually engage that patient pool? How do I activate that patient pool? And how can I get that patient pool to clinic and once they're in clinic on my therapy? And that presents another significant strategic question that oftentimes often companies uh, may not have all the answers for, and that's where we support them. Um, once that question is addressed, there's the obvious question of how do I optimize the pricing an access environment for my asset? And how do I, in conjunction with price and access, um, get my asset to market as fast as possible? And getting that triangle of price, time, and volume right is in some ways the magic triangle. And that's what often companies, um, oftentimes, uh, I wouldn't say struggle to get right, but they do oftentimes require support. And that's where we come in. And once we've addressed those, uh, what I would call uh, revenue line questions, then we come to the cost side of the equation. And oftentimes, um, clients do ask us for our, our views and our recommendations on what the commercial strategy should look like, uh, what their commercial infrastructure should look like, what the access infrastructure should look like, what that translates to into operating expenses, and, and ultimately, what, translates, what that translates to into their NPV. And all of those are areas where we support our clients. Okay, so so, so the outcomes that the, there are these sort of specific questions, and then you will be sort of delivering um, some answers. So, so what 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 does that sort of that delivery look like? I mean, can you give us a for instance? Sure. So, um, as an example, uh, we work with a company that uh, was um, in phase three for an orphan indication. And it was an interesting indication in that there hadn't been a lot of clinical development or innovation in that indication for a number of years. Um, our client had a novel formulation. It was differentiated. It had a clear benefit in terms of convenience. It had a clear benefit in terms of its efficacy. However, um, their clinical trial wasn't 
optimized for markets outside of the US. And what that meant is that um, they needed to then take a strategic decision on one, whether to um, adapt their clinical development program to uh, meet the requirements of regulators and payers in Europe. And that meant investment, right? And before making that investment, they actually wanted to understand whether the commercial opportunity in Europe was actually big enough for them to then uh, consider that investment. So that was the problem case. What we did was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a sequential drill down of the commercial opportunity for the asset. So we looked at the epidemiology. They had certain estimates of um, prevalent and prevalent diagnosed and incident population that uh, were subject to some discrepancies. And uh, we did a, a thorough literature review. We spoke to uh, KOLs, um, looked at registry information and got a better sense of what that addressable patient pool was. Uh, we then uh, looked at the competitive environment. As I mentioned, most of the therapies in the uh, indication were in some ways legacy therapies. Uh, generics were coming into the market. That meant additional competitive threat, not just from the incumbent innovators, but also from generics. And as we all know, in Europe, once generics come in, even if they're not head-to-head -head competitors from a formulation perspective, uh, payers do consider them as your competitor, and that impacts your, your price potential. Uh, so we looked at um, KOL and payer perceptions of the of the asset. We conducted analog analysis, uh, understood what the likely uh, price corridor uh, for the for the reformulation would be, and uh, basis the analysis on the, the patient pool, basis the analysis on the competitive landscape and the potential competitive um, threat or. Uh, share that the asset could get, and uh, the analysis of pricing and access potential, uh, we got to a fairly robust scenario-based um, uh, assessment of the revenue potential of the asset. Uh, as I mentioned before, looked at what kind of access and commercial infrastructure would be required, and gave them uh, a scenario-based assessment of what they might realize in terms of profit should they go ahead and commercialize in Europe. And this gave them a much better sense of um, what they might realize if they made the investment in the clinical development program versus a competitor, as opposed to a placebo uh, in the US. So uh, they, they're now in that process of uh, considering the next uh, phase development program for Europe. And the, the recommendations were, were uh, I would say, appreciated by senior management because they got clarity, they could provide their board clarity, they could provide investors clarity as to what their strategy for Europe would be. And as you can imagine, that is that is a key question for biotechs in the US. And uh, that's what we happen to specialize in. Right, so I mean, one of the, um, so in the past, you know, biotechs would normally take a, an asset to, 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 to prove of concept. Yep. I mean, the fact that we now have, you know, sort of orphan uh, diseases, et cetera, they, they can sort of move forward. But actually, we're sort of seeing that, you know, companies are actually realizing that they sort of, they can capture more value, they can sort of build critical mass by sort of, you know, maintaining control of their assets, which, of course, that means that they are, you know, sort of, you know, essentially, you know, looking at the, um, you know, the go, no go decision. So when, when companies get to sort of, you know, that 
that phase two go no go decision. I mean, what sort of you know experience have you had against sort of you know, helping companies out with that sort of uh, approach? So I think uh, the one the one area that we uh, as DRG Consulting uh, specialize in is. Uh, decision analysis, right? It's the it's the application of decision science to make better informed decisions. And in those particular situations, uh, what clients really value is the fact that we can assign not just a number to value and risk, but also provide them a sense of what drives value and what drives risk. What are those market level threats? What are those competitive threats? What are the regulatory threats uh, and the pressing uh, and reimbursement or the payer environment threats that uh, impact the value of the asset. And uh, in making a go-no-go decision, uh, it's important not just to have, uh, in some ways, a baseline uh, assessment of the asset's value and risk, uh, but more importantly, um, what alternatives exist on the table by way of strategic alternatives. And a good example is um, some recent work that we did with a company that had an asset in, uh, in phase two. And uh, they, were, they were behind the competition. So for them, it was really important to be able to make an informed judgment on whether it was worthwhile to actually proceed with uh, development uh, for the asset, given it was a crowded space. It was one that uh, their baseline assessments indicated to them that uh, they would not make a lot of money. But then, as you can imagine, uh, biotechs don't have that many assets to play with. So it's important for them to, to use the client's own words, squeeze the juice out of the asset. Uh, and that meant uh, for them to go back to the drawing board and assess, okay, is there a way in which we can innovate? Is there a, is there a way in which we can differentiate this asset and drive some incremental value uh, as opposed to canning it? Uh, so they came to us, uh, asked us, can you help? And that's where we, uh, from a consultative perspective, um, believe we could. And the reason for that is, of course, um, yeah, not just the fact that we have uh, world-class epidemiologists, not, not just we have, we have world-class um, experts in different disease areas, but we also have pharmacologists on our team. We have doctors on our team. And that allows us to work directly with clinical development um, uh, and medical teams uh, in client companies and merge that um, collective insight into um, development of what we call TPP alternatives. Uh, so what we did in this case was we looked at a, a range of different uh, alternatives uh, and through an iterative process um, convinced ourselves that there were alternatives that were um, clinically viable, feasible for development and commercially compelling in that they drove incremental value over and above the baseline uh, TPE. Uh, and some of, the, some of those alternatives involved looking at a larger population uh, where there was no indication um, within the overall, where there was no asset indicated within the overall indication, but which required a biomarker in order to stratify populations that were at higher risk of progression. And that was unique. That was innovative, hadn't been done before involved risk, but was at least something that the client could consider as an alternative to drive more value. Another option we considered was uh, going head to head versus the closest competitor. Obviously, that's a risky strategy, but in an environment where you need to differentiate, you need to show 
some level of statistical superiority or at least non-inferiority, uh, it was important to consider that alternative and the pros and cons uh, and the associated risks of that alternative. And last but not the least, looking at an alternative that involved combination. Uh, if their asset on a standalone basis couldn't drive the value they were expecting, could they combine it with um, an existing asset from a different mechanism of action class and demonstrate the combined efficacy being superior to current standard of care. So again, those were examples of the different alternatives that we developed and designed. And what we did was we then took each alternative through a rigorous process of evaluation of value and risk. And that involved the standard methodological techniques that I mentioned. So speaking to KOLs, speaking to payers, uh, running a quantitative analysis uh, with a uh, conjoint. Uh, and driving a level of analytical rigor and robustness that from a client satisfaction perspective, gave them the comfort and confidence to consider uh, the different options on the table. In the end, um, and I, I, won't, I won't necessarily state what the outcome was, but in the end, they walked away with a much better sense of the alternatives and therefore were able to come to a much better informed decision as to what to do next from a go-no-go perspective. And, and this is important because oftentimes um, clients do, um, because, because they've made investments in a certain program, uh, there's oftentimes a bit, of a, a bit of a sunk cost orientation where we make the investments, uh, so let's plow on or not. But oftentimes it's, it's important to step back and reevaluate your situation, look at alternatives, and then evaluate those alternatives, not worrying about what has been invested in the past, because that is the past and it doesn't affect your future value. So um, supporting clients and helping clients make those kinds of informed decisions are what we do well. That was an example of, um, in some ways, developing alternative asset, um, uh, alternative DPPs for an asset. And um, those are the kinds of, um, I would say, projects that, uh, drive value for clients and uh, that's why that's why we uh, well they come back to us so so what yeah, when a company say for example it's not sort of you know developing an asset that's for you know sort of yeah, a classical you know unmet medical need but actually you know as I think you sort of were saying there was you know one of one of the um, the options you you've already have discussed is where it was already sort of fairly crowded space so, so when a company is you know, looking to, you know, I guess, sort of, you know, suggest or show that it has an alternative, better approach to, to, to patient care, what, what, sort of, what sort of issues do you, you know, encourage management teams to, 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 to be thinking about? You know, what, you know, how, how, how can they ensure that they're going to win sort of share a voice in that in that crowded market both amongst physicians and also patients good good question mike um i guess when when um we're working with companies that have assets uh that aren't necessarily differentiated um are operating in crowded markets and um have to cut through the clutter, so to speak, then 
as I mentioned in the previous in the previous uh, use case, um, we do need to come to the table with a range of different alternatives, which are, uh, to the point I mentioned before, uh, clinically viable, um, developmentally feasible, and um, commercially compelling. Um, and in so doing, um, one of there are a few foundational principles as far as the analysis is concerned. And aside of what I mentioned, uh, one important fundamental principle is um, when we've gotten to a point where um, we don't believe any of the options or any of the alternatives um, make sense. Um, in our in our past experience, uh, we've not shied away from letting the client know, that, look, we've reached a dead end. Um, there is no value in this particular program. The, that that in itself triggers interesting discussions as to, okay, it may not be valuable for us, but could it be valuable for another company or another asset owner, another developer? Uh, and that could be for a range of different reasons. It could be because um, they have deeper pockets and are willing to absorb the risk of development, which our client uh, may not be. Uh, it could be that they already have an asset in the indication and for them, therefore, the value bringing in uh, this additional asset as a follow on uh, is something that they can consider as opposed to a new entrant, which has a higher barrier to entry uh, in that particular indication. So uh, it's not just looking at uh, options in-house. It's also looking at options externally. And that's a process that we actively encourage clients to consider, uh, especially if they're open to potential licensing out or potential partnership. Um, many times uh, in the environment that we work in, uh, biotechs have, uh, and to your point, Mike, earlier, um, biotechs are going through the cycle of um, advancing their own assets through in-house commercialization, as opposed to say five or 10 years ago where out-licensing was the model. But it's important for biotechs to still maintain the option of the out-license or the partner on the table. And in many cases, when you do the valuation of the asset, assuming a partner's capabilities or a partner's infrastructure, then you might actually realize that it makes more sense and it creates more value to consider the out-license, consider the sale. And that's something that we, uh, to the point I mentioned earlier in terms of areas we operate in, uh, we do support companies with those out-licensing evaluations to ensure that we've evaluated all options on the table and we create value for the client. So, so in the examples you've shared, um, what, does, what does engagement between you know, your team and, and the, sort of the client actually look like? I mean, how, what, how long is the sort of the, 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 sort of the process... And are these are these just you know discrete one-off arrangements? Yeah, how how does it work? Sure. Um, well, pre-COVID, <laughs> we would um, uh, we would engage with clients uh, fairly collaboratively, fairly I would say uh, intensively, in that um, most oftentimes uh, projects start off with an intensive kickoff and mobilization phase where we spend a fair bit of time. Uh, in working sessions with the clients, um, understanding uh, their current asset, the profile, the TPP, uh, all the work that's been done so far in terms of uh, clinical development, uh, shape the 
uh, research plan or the business questions together, and then advance forward into an analytical, a research and analytical phase. That involves building hypotheses, that involves uh, structuring the research and the analysis, whether it's primary, whether it's analog analysis, whether it's um, doing literature search for epidemiology or for competition, uh, doing all the analysis that leads us into um, the, the eventual analysis for the valuation or for the financial modeling or for the revenue forecasting. Um, and, and then, of course, once we've done that, uh, we come back to the client, uh, present results. And what we try and do more often than not is not just leave them with the outputs or outcomes of the analysis, but try and give them a tangible sense of, so what? What does this mean for you from a strategy perspective? Should you invest or not? Should you expand geographically or not? Should you partner or keep in-house? And that kind of decision orientation um, which is the culmination of the project is what um, drives value for the client in terms of engaging with us. Uh, typically, these kind of engagements for uh, emerging biopharma companies or biotech companies would last um, between six to 10 or 12 weeks, depending on how complex the problem is. Um, as I said, we, we try and engage um, very collaboratively. Uh, oftentimes, the best results are ones where there's iterative refinement of the hypotheses, there's active contribution to the research instruments, uh, there's significant pressure testing of the, the financial model, the financial evaluation, and the recommendations. And uh, as I mentioned before, um, more often than not, clients appreciate the analytical rigor, they appreciate the, uh, the guidance and the direction that we provide, the recommendations we make, and therefore, uh, the way we structure our engagements, uh, we always um, leave the door open for follow-on work and uh, clients oftentimes come back to us with uh, either the next phase of the same question or uh, come back to us asking for a similar analysis on a different asset or a different indication. And that's how we, that's how we build the relationship. That's how we build trust. Right. So... As a sort of a final question, and this is a, it's almost like the bottom line question. You know, biotech management, um, you know, they they're constantly looking at you know sort of return on investment. Um, you know, sort of very much it's it's around sort of uh, you know preserving the sort of the capital resources that they have. So I can imagine that many in the audience are going to sort of saying you know while they're agreeing that sort of you know the insights that uh, you and your team can provide are going to be you know, useful they're probably sort of thinking yeah but how much does this cost and you know could we afford it sure so um i, I guess the, the the way that we structure our engagements is uh we we typically um structure them or structure our fees based on uh the time we spend the effort we expend and the expertise that we bring to the table and um, whilst sometimes the price tag can be one that uh, biotechs, especially pre-revenue biotechs, find somewhat prohibitive, uh, the truth is we adopt a flexible modular orientation. So we oftentimes work with clients where we can break down the problem statement into its constituent parts. And then instead of going for um, a single project, you can actually split that up into multiple 
um, projects and kind of almost in a stage gated process um, kind of uh, unpeel unpeel the onion right so to speak and clients appreciate that um, and that's part of our flexible boutique orientation um, that being said um, there have been clients that have given urgency given immediacy to address the strategic question uh, they have they have um, gone with us and, and the, at the end um, in my experience most clients have appreciated the value that we've brought to the table and they've uh, recognize that it's it's money well spent, and that's a function of again the strategic recommendation because we can we can demonstrate the value uh, for the biotech um, in in concrete financial terms, and when they communicate that back to their investors. Um, case in point, uh, we actually do have um, a biotech that's come back to us, and they may be considering. Uh, going public this year and um, they've actually come back to us asking for guidance on their strategy um, which impacts their their going public and uh, that's on the back of uh, work that we did with them before so uh, whilst there was as you can imagine a bit of uh, negotiation that happened the first time around uh, the second time they want to work with us because they saw the value good so so doc thanks so much for um, taking the time to to talk to me today. Um, yeah, you know the insights that uh, you're sharing. Um, I'm sure going to be of, of great interest to to a lot of the audience. Um, you know, wherever they are in the in, in the healthcare system. So, um, so so thanks very much. Thank you, Mike. Uh, appreciate it, and have a great rest of the day. So yeah. So if after listening to this broadcast, uh, you'd like to tune into future conversations in health. Follow our LinkedIn page where we'll be posting alerts to future episode releases. So in closing, I'd, I'd like to thank Doc again for, for, for joining us and, and thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. So until next time, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.